universalism and evangelicalism. At the same time Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, went up in flames, Yale's Miroslav Volf's book, Allah, was published. The former book became a sensation, not the least of reasons for which was that it made so many conservative evangelicals angry to the point of spewing the heresy word and even the Satan word at him. There is no reason even to be surprised at the inflammatory nature of universalism for some evangelicals. But there is reason to wonder why Wolf's very well done book drew almost no attention. One can at least argue that if someone is a Christian universalist, that person really does believe not just that some people will be saved, but that all will be saved, and one would also believe those all persons will be saved through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone. But to argue what Wolf argued ought at least to have drawn some attention, if not serious heated debate. The strange stillness over Wolf boggles. So let me trot out just a few, a brief sketch of what Wolf argued. First, he argued that the God of Christianity is the Trinity in its orthodox expression, Nicaea, Chalcedon, and with finesse and articulation. And in this God, Wolf personally believes and is this classical tradition that he confesses. Second, he argued that the Muslim God, Allah, is the same God of Christians, though not identical. In other words, Wolf contended when Christians and Muslims are worshiping, they are worshiping the same God, and they are pointing in the same direction. Third, he argued that he has no intent on minimizing the differences in order to create some kind of age of tolerance God. Fourth, he argued on the basis of the same God and similar worship, lucidly reduced to loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, that there is a foundation for greater peace in our world. He contends, even if his readers will wonder if he's not stretching it a bit, that Islam, like Christianity, affirms the essence of the ethical life in loving our neighbors. But no one seemed to care. There are perhaps a dozen or more explanations, including that it is just flat-out dangerous to talk about Islam or to say something that might get you in serious trouble. So some avoid the topic of Islam altogether. Perhaps some were just not aware of Wolf's book, so I did something about it. I wrote the editor of a major reform blog and challenged them to put up a serious and extensive review of a serious theologian in the United States. They put up a short, even if negative, review. Nothing came of it. I did see one tweet that said, Farewell, Miroslav Volf. But the book went largely unnoticed and did not create any stir. Perhaps I'm alone, but I think Wolf's book challenges some of the deepest theoretical frameworks in the Christian faith.
I wonder why. I shall tell you tonight what I think. I don't think that either Islam or the doctrine of Trinity matter that much to most evangelicals. Miro and I had an extensive correspondence about his book, and I said I wasn't so sure that the two gods were the same God, even with his caveat, but not in the same sense as identical. He thinks Muslims are mistaken, but aiming toward the same God. I think our perception of God as Trinity, as incarnate in Jesus, the Son of God, and Logos, lead to such wildly different perceptions of God that it is not meaningful to say they are the same God. He came back to tell me I was being too postmodern and I was anchoring God too much in how we talk about God and how we understand God. Well, I think he's got a point. And I didn't quite back down, but I did run out of time. He came to our campus and our conversation was never completed. But I know for a fact that many conservative evangelicals would never be caught dead saying, at least in public, that the God of Islam and the God of Christianity is the same God. In fact, I know for a fact that many would say that it is heresy to say such a thing. John Piper would be one person. But he never said a word about Wolf's book, even though earlier he was vehemently opposed to Wolf's The Common Word Project that sought to coordinate Christian and Islam leaders to strive for a common ethic, love of neighbor. Wolf's book drew no attention. Rob Bell's book did. And it is worth our efforts to drill down a bit to discern why so many got irritated with Rob Bell, someone who has always pushed the boundaries of evangelicalism, and ignored Miroslav Volf, someone who has probably been more inside the boundaries of orthodox evangelicalism than has Rob Bell. So I'd like to give a few of my thoughts about the Rob Bell, Rob Bell controversy. There's so much to say about Rob Bell's book, and I've said most of what I want to say on my blog. And most of us have been through this already, so let me just make a few brief points. First... Rob Bell flirted with universalism and does not come out as a certain universalist. It's best to call him a hopeful universalist. For some, no one but a certain universalist, like Thomas Talbot, George MacDonald, or Origen, can be called a true universalist. Second, some immediately spoke up that universalism is unorthodox, and I suppose that is a fair statement, Though as church historians and historians of theology have observed, it's not quite clear that 553's council actually denounced universalism per se. But few would dispute that universalism has at least been on the fringe, if not in the rough or in the water next to the green. What we might want to observe, if only in passing, is that appealing to orthodoxy's traditional condemnation of universalism is to appeal to orthodoxy, and that means that people ought to care enough about orthodoxy to talk about Miroslav Volf's book, which is directly about orthodoxy. Third, Bell pushed another button. 
He evidently believes in everlasting post-mortem opportunities to grasp the love of God and respond to God so that one can be saved. And he infers this from the way he understands God's love. Bell, it ought to be noted, did not argue this on the basis of biblical texts like 1 Peter chapter 3, which many have said could at least provide an analogy for Bell's post-mortem opportunity theory. Instead, he just let the idea bloom in his book until it was a blossoming flower and it was just a part of the garden that we were uh, watching. Fourth, at the root of Bell's book and buried in the heart of the title is a libertarian free will belief that says since God loves us, he will give us the freedom to choose and will never coerce us to believe, which is how I read Tom Talbot, upon whom it appears to me Bell was deeply dependent. Finally, it appears to me that Bell entered into a virtue ethics orientation on who gets into the age to come in the kingdom of God. That is, one's responses in life build a character that orients a person's ultimate decisions. Not unlike C.S. Lewis, Bell seems to think if anyone doesn't go through the gates into the new Jerusalem, it is because they choose not to. Before I push into this a bit, one brief word on how I think Calvinists should respond, not that I think they will be listening in on my advice for them. It is relatively easy for a Calvinist, at least a staunch one, to respond to the bell flap. Just say that those who are elect will go to heaven and those who aren't will go to hell. Why the fight over Bell's presentation and details? Why not just cut to the core where we find the seeds for the doctrines of grace? Why not just end it by saying, no, Mr. Rob Bell, there is no such thing as libertarian free will. God makes these decisions and be done with it. Maybe I'm just not Calvinist enough to know why they don't respond like this. Okay, universalism is outside the mainstream, even if Rob Bell didn't admit that. But Bell's hardly the first in our world to argue for universalism, even if, as I say, he is not a full-blown universalist and so therefore really doesn't fall under the anathemas of Constantinople's decision. But still no one seems to worry about the many who are universalists, like Thomas Talbot. Is it because Bell is a rock star? Certainly that's part of it. But why the inflammatory rhetoric and the monstrous response? I want to suggest tonight that the response to Bell reveals something about the heart of evangelicalism, that saving everyone, which at least ought to be a great idea for all of us to consider, and that giving people an endless chance to respond to God threatened the fabric of evangelicalism. But before I make my suggestion, I want to sketch in brief the evidence for universalism because it's not like Rob Bell just made this stuff up. So I want to look at universalism in the New Testament. And I've got a handout for you, but I'll mention this in a minute. Flying over the Pacific Ocean on our way to Australia this summer, I was reading Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson's book called Hell Under Fire, a book dedicated to rebut anyone who wants to flirt with anything other 
than classic Christian exclusivism. That is, that only those who consciously respond to the gospel will find eternal bliss in the presence of God. I finished the book on the flight. I think we were about over Hawaii. And then I began to read Jerry Wall's exceptional book, Hell, the Logic of Damnation. Two books that when I got up to walk around the plane to dampen the dullness of a 14-hour flight, I put face down so as not to create any conversations I didn't want to have in the pitch of night. Somewhere over the Pacific, in reading Doug Moo's contribution on hell in Paul's thought in the Morgan Peterson volume, I made a notation in the margin of my copy of the book that began to bug me, and it bugs me still. That notation was this. Which way is the right way to move? Tone down the all texts with hell texts, or tone down hell texts with all texts. The logic, you know what I mean by what I'm saying? All will be saved. The logic and the method are annoyingly the same. Either you take the all texts and soften them so that all doesn't mean all, or you take eternal hell texts and soften them so that eternal no longer means forever, but means for a limited period of time. The method is the same. The texts are now in front of you, and you can read through them if you wish, or you can listen to what I want to call a biblical theology of universalism. What I'm about to do is to treat these texts the way we would treat any other theme in the Bible. Sort them out and synthesize them into a summary. I've not really seen anyone do this, especially anyone who in the end doesn't embrace universalism. But I do think methodologically this ought to be the first step instead of the pick them apart until they fall apart approach that most evangelicals use. So there are the texts and I'll try to put them together with a few observations. First, the primary observation, the primary emphasis of the universalism text is the redemption of all human beings, though at times this is a cosmic redemption of all things. I list 13 texts, 10 of which probably refer to humans, while three seem to indicate the redemption of all creation. Acts 3.21, 1 Corinthians 15 text, and Colossians 1.20. In normal biblical theology, it is the accumulation of evidence that matters heavily. So it might be wise for us to observe that there is a significant accumulation of texts where redemption is very clearly universal and cosmic. To be a bit cheeky, there are more texts on universalism than there are on the rapture. Second, the emphasis of these texts, which was part of the reason for their selection, is that they are about God's redemptive work. The range of metaphors is impressive. In order, we find Jesus himself drawing all people to himself. God's restoring of all things. We find justification and life in Romans 5.18. Then we find God having mercy on all. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, the operative idea is new creation or resurrection or making alive. And that new creation is prepared for by the destruction of death and all opposition. In his second letter to Corinth, Paul says God is reconciling the world in Christ and this means not counting sins against them, which means the world. The hymn-like material of Philippians 2 sees the redemptive work in terms of bowing and confessing. And that cosmic scene is matched by Colossians 1.20. God's redemptive work of the cosmos here is seen as reconciliation. God, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, wants all people to be saved, and that means coming to apprehend the truth. And another pastoral uses, again, salvation that comes from the grace of God, Titus 2.11. That gnarly Second Peter is not as pessimistic as some people think. God here does not want anyone to perish, but instead he wants everyone to repent. That same God of grace, Hebrews tells us, sent his son to taste death for everyone. And we might recall that death is the singular punishment for sin in 2.9. That death-tasking son, according to 1 John, is the one who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and John says for the sins of the whole world. It's all here. Everyone and everything in all of creation is redeemed. And what we mean by redemption explores most of the major metaphors for redemption in other parts of the Bible. But many just won't go with it because it strains every ligament in our joints to think like this. But let's say it again. All tends to mean all. And if all does mean all, then there is a powerful universalism at work in more than a dozen passages in the New Testament. Straining the ligaments needs to be admitted because no matter who you are, you know that leaning against the weight of the entire church tradition and to switch metaphors, it's like an ordinary golf hack trying to beat the world's finest golfer. You might get lucky here and there, but you know the avalanche is coming and it can't be held back. Why? Let me now sketch the avalanche of destruction passages. I begin with this. The God of the Bible, from day whatever in Eden until the World Series final game in Revelation 22, is unquestionably a God who judges. This towers like a Colossus theme in the Bible. Israel's time in Egypt, Israel's time in Assyria, Israel's time in Babylon and the Romans, well, one prophet after another is facing the enemy and rendering political and national defeat as the judgment of God. The eschatology of the Bible, whoops, the eschatology of the Bible where the prophet scopes into the far future involves judgment and destruction. This isn't the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. This is the theme of the one God of the Bible. A second theme concerns the sorts of images exploited when the writers want to warn folks of judgment. 
it is fair to reduce them to three. Punishment, banishment, and destruction. So Jesus calls that judgment fire and punishment and wrath and condemnation. Paul stands with Jesus and sees God's judgment as the wrath and anger and trouble and distress. And this is poured out on those who are wicked. Such people are excluded from the kingdom. In the language of Hebrews, this is about curse and fire and death and destruction. Fire, in fact, is found elsewhere, 2 Peter 3, 7, but especially in that lake of fire in the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 20. What now causes the straining with the universalism text is that judgment is sometimes called eternal, and the church has read eternal as something indicating endlessness. To be sure, some have argued that ionios only means pertaining to an age, and is therefore temporarily limited. But in Jewish thought, the age to come, or the kingdom, is both an age and an endless age. So I find the argument that Ionios is a temporary affair completely unconvincing. Anyway, this term appears in Matthew 18, 25, and John 3. But the singular texts that make universalism most difficult are the endlessness ideas in the Apocalypse, most notably in Revelation 14 and chapter 20. Before we do anything with this problematic convergence of evidence, like hot water and cold water merging into one river, I want briefly to mention an issue that does not get sufficient attention and which I don't know enough about. Judgment in the Old Testament and in Judaism prior to the New Testament is focused at the national and corporate level, while we Christians have tended to read most of these texts, if not all of them, in the New Testament as judgment texts as personal and individual. When Tom Wright wrote Jesus and the Victory of God and suggested, as I also did, as we both were dependent upon George Gaird, that judgment texts in the New Testament were much more about the prediction of destruction at the hands of Rome in 70 AD, some folks observed that this was quite the shock to their individualized system of thinking. And I am a partial preterist, though this hasn't grabbed my attention now for a decade, so I want to leave this issue on the table to temper some of what we see in these texts. For some, these judgment texts are to be read as destruction at the historical plane and not in the personal soteriological plane. Those who do so are really offering a colossal paradigm shift so big that it takes a long time to get used to it. In fact, what applies to all or to a nation in some sense applies to each in that nation. So it's not as if opting for the national historical suddenly solves the problems by making them all go away. When the Cubs hire a new general manager, it won't make their weak team strong. And so you can get my point and we'll move on to other topics. What do we do now? What do we do with this strong universalist biblical theology when we come to this strong judgment theology? I suggest there are three options. Methodologically, so I would say, we could use the second group to explain the first, 
Or we could reverse it and use the first text to explain the second group. It's the same method. For the first, we could say that somehow all doesn't mean all. And there are two options in this set. The all of these texts refers to the elect, which is the Augustinian or Calvinist view, while the Arminian view is to say that this is more up to the person's response and say that all refers to only those who choose to believe. A good example of this is Howard Marshall's response to Tom Talbot in a book edited by Robin Perry and Christopher Partridge. You can look it up in the library. Or we could say that all really does mean everyone, including Hitler, as well as Longhorn and Aggie fans. And that would mean that eternal refers to a probationary period, during which time God so compellingly offers his grace to those who have not responded, either at the moment of death or in the post-mortem condition, and will eventually respond. Thus, eternal does not mean forever. I really don't know that there is a methodologically sound way to get out of this dilemma, nor is it my hope even to resolve this with you tonight. We are concerned more with why Rob Bell got into such heat over what he said. But two points might be worth our attention. First, one could take the eschatological vision of the end of Revelation, chapters 20 through 22, and use that as our hermeneutical or heuristic device. In that text, it says that some will be tossed into the lake of fire and be tormented forever and ever. If that is the final condition of humanity or some of humanity, then all either means elect or believers. And I would say both, but that just doesn't help the Arminian-Calvinistic divide. Second, Romans 5, 17 to 19, and you have those texts in front of you or part of them, leads me to think that the all passages might best be explained generically rather than exhaustively. That is... All is a way of speaking of the glorious completeness of God's redemptive work, though it does not speak about the fate of each and every person who has ever lived. Let me read the text, which begin in Romans 5:17, with a generic idea. Paul says, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Then these texts, move, then his words move into a universalist tone. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. And then to what appears to be an exclusivist or limitation view. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. For some, neither of these options explain things adequately, and they don't mind dwelling in the dilemma of maybe all will be saved and maybe they won't. This doesn't work very well in most pulpits, but it works for some of my friends. They are agnostic, and they don't care to spend time worrying about such topics. But Rob Bell proved that agnostics are not as loud as those who do care. 
Which leads me back to Rob Bell one more time. Rob Bell put his finger on what might be the hottest spot I've seen among evangelicals in a long time. The problem under the hot spot, a hot spot that is mostly covered up and ignored and hoped to disappear, and the sooner the better, the problem, as I say, is that evangelicals have this rather exclusivist stance at work in so much of their rhetoric and their faith. Terry Thiessen, who was a Calvinist and who has done some exceptionally careful thinking about these issues, calls this view ecclesiocentrism. That view is that you either believe in the gospel as preached by the church or you go to hell. Those who have not heard are whether one grieves over this or not, and whether one makes to give a few exceptions, are going to hell. The church and salvation are almost coextensive. This view is held among Catholics and the Orthodox, some Orthodox, and Evangelicals, and clearly motivated huge chunks of the 19th century missionary movement. I grew up on this view. And those going to hell were not just the North Koreans and the Chinese, but the Presbyterians and the Methodists and most of the Southern Baptists. We were fundamentalist Baptists and had our worries about the Southern Baptist Convention. We had never heard of the Texas Baptists. It was sure good to grow up born again and to be on the right team. I often thought like this after a particularly threatening illustration in a hellfire sermon of someone who almost decided to go forward but got killed in a car accident on the way home from church. My, I heard bundles of stories like this when I grew up. I don't know if you did. The constellation of religion, so I think, is what got, this constellation of religion is what I think got Rob Bell going, as he did, and it is why so many tapped into his book, because they're concerned about that form of exclusivism. There are other views besides this exclusivist or ecclesiocentric view. Some like J.I. Packer and D.A. Carson and John Piper say they are agnostic but not at all hopeful that anyone other than those who hear the gospel and respond consciously will be saved. Others like Terry Thiessen are accessibilists and believe that God makes himself known to each person at least once in a lifetime whether through the gospel about Jesus Christ or personally some other way. In other words, framing inclusivism in a more special revelation package. And I think John Piper gets mighty close to this in his discussion of Cornelius in Acts 10 through 11. Thiessen believes God makes himself known to each person in that person's lifetime, and that means everyone is responsible for his or her decision. There are, more, there are other more open views, like religious instrumentalists and pluralists, and Rob Bell seems, in my view, to land with the religious instrumentalists, or at least a very wide sense of inclusivism. Whatever view you take, this is a pressing issue for anyone who grew up in a church that believes strongly in exclusivism or in the kind of evangelism that threatened hell for anyone who didn't respond. What happened with Rob Bell's book was that it revealed a deep chasm 
among evangelicals or at least in the evangelical culture, depending again on who and what counts as evangelical. The chasm was this. Some are more or less exclusivists, and it is non-negotiable territory, while others are inclusivists or accessibleists or religious instrumentalists, and they are more or less universalists and don't care to define their terms neatly enough for the other side to know whether they are safe or dangerous. The exclusivists think the others are giving the boat away, while the broad-minded think the exclusivists are mean-spirited and uh, cinchy and unloving and ungenerous and worshiping a stingy God and, well, Dutch. And some of them are Dutch. So one side called them all dangerous, and the other side called the others rigid fundamentalists. And that is exactly where we are today. Evangelicalism is cracking up at its fault line, and Rob Bell exposed it. So I now want to examine that fault line and suggest why I think Rob Bell's book ignited such a ferocious debate. The simple facts are these. Evangelicalism is not defined first and foremost by historic orthodoxy which would mean that some kinds of universalism would be permissible, say the kind advocated by Gregory of Nyssa. I'm no expert on this one, but it seems to me that it was the Neoplatonic stuff of origin that was really off the map at Constantinople. Second, evangelicalism is not defined simply by Bebington's quadrilateral, that is, by belief in biblicism, conversionism, crucicentrism, and activism. Add Marsden's coalitionism, and you still don't have anything for anyone to get irritated with Rob Bell about. Bell can believe each of these above and still more or less believe everything he wrote in Love Wins. Third, and this one surprises some, it is not enough to get evangelicals irritated if they believe that, in salvation, that salvation is in Christ alone. Christian universalists have always believed salvation is in Christ alone, and they are not pluralists. As I said, Rob Bell is not that kind of universalist. He seems to be hopeful, but he seems to teach all salvation is in Christ alone, and in Christ one can find salvation even if he's a broad-minded inclusivist who thinks opportunities go on forever in the post-mortem condition. None of these can explain, I don't think, what happened. The issue, I contend, is not universalism per se. The issue is not salvation in Christ per se. What was it? The issue that exposed the fault line is that evangelicalism's essential identity is the necessity of the new birth, the born-again experience as the soul and necessary means of entering into a relationship with God. The born-again experience is required, and it alone leads to eternal life. Did Rob Bell teach this? Well, yes, I think he did. Now it looks like I've backed myself into a corner. The issue, if I can now get myself out, is that by hoping for universalism, Rob Bell robbed evangelicals of their privileged state of being the only true people of God 
in this world. As I argued this morning, evangelicalism is a collection of those who can tell the story of being born again. And that story is at the same time the story that marks off those who are saved from those who are not saved. One more point will now make this clear. Standing next to this self-consciousness of the born-again experience is the belief that we have but one life to make a decision, that death ends the opportunity to respond to God, and that if we don't decide now, our fate is sealed. Rob Bell broke down the urgent need for redemption when he suggested over and over that God's never-ending love would mean endless opportunities to respond to God, and those opportunities would last forever. The most common response to Rob Bell was not, Romans 5.18 needs to be explained by Revelation 20.11. The most common response was this, why be a Christian now? In that question, we get a pure glimpse into the identity and meaning of evangelicalism. If being born again, and therefore being marked off from the rest of the world doomed to hell, is not the point of Christ and the gospel and life now, why be born again now? It's the opposite question that young adults ask about sex. Why wait for sex, they ask, and also why not wait for the post-mortem chance? Those questions unfold from the one and nearly only identification marker for evangelicalism. Evangelicals may believe in the Bible, and they may believe in the centrality of the cross, and they may believe in activism, but what they most believe in is the necessity of the new birth and the eternal significance of that one decision in this life for one's eternal condition. If eternality is flirted with, or if decisions can be made in the afterlife, evangelicalism collapses for many, which is precisely why John Piper wrote his little book, Is Jesus the Only Way to God? Many are with Piper in the significance of one life. I'm in that many. And it's not because I'm an evangelical of his sort. It's because I'm that kind of biblicist who believes in the necessity of conversion and who believes that theology ought to be grounded in the Bible. And that means I find no compelling text to think that there is any opportunity to respond to God in a new and saving way after death. I don't pretend to know why this is the case. But it appears to me that death ends human opportunities. And I don't know why God made life that way, but that is how I read the Bible. Yes, the descent into hell in church history has suggested this for some. But that reading of 1 Peter 3 has not been compelling to me. So let me put it now this way. Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, was an assault on the very heart of evangelicalism. It deserved better responses. It deserved pastoral approaches. And it deserved a better listening to the many who struggle with the fate of those who have not heard.
But that book assaulted the very core of evangelical identity. The necessity of new birth as a result of responding to the gospel in this life and in this life alone. Evangelicalism is about a minority that believes in the necessity of a personal conversion and one has one life to make that decision. At the core of evangelicalism then is the new birth. Anyone who tampers with that will pay for it as Rob Bell did. Thank you.